I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI chemistry professor Jim Smith. Jim performs laboratory and field measurements in order to understand and to quantify the mechanisms by which nanometer-sized particles form and grow in the air. These mechanisms are directly related to air quality and climate. So, wow, there's a lot to talk about here. (laughs) But 2020 has been anything but normal. As a result of COVID-19, since March, Jim has been studying the filtration abilities of homemade mask materials and developing simple and effective mask designs. Looking forward to the conversations. Welcome, Professor Smith. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank great. you for having me here. You're welcome. You know, before we get into all these things, can you just tell us a little bit about how you became a scientist? Was it when you were a small boy, or how did that all <laughs> develop? Yeah, I, I'm happy to. So I, I, I guess I was always a scientist ever since I could remember. I'm always curious about the world, enjoyed the sciences in high school, Where'd you grow up, Jim? I grew up up in the Bay Area, San Jose. Okay. I'm uh, actually uh, the son of a park ranger. My dad was a seasonal ranger in Yosemite. And so we spent the summers up in the park. And then he was a teacher in the off, you know, well, that was really his job. Uh, But uh, so just really interested in the natural world and, and in understanding why things do what they do. And so, of course, that that to me, that that kind of led me uh, along a path of uh, physical sciences. I actually studied physics as an undergrad. I like to say that I I, I uh, was led astray a little bit with my love of physics because now I'm a chemist. But uh, it's uh, it was it was uh, a path I took. And then after I um, after I finished that, I actually went into maybe a circuitous path, you might say. I actually ended up working for a small company in what's now called the Silicon Valley. Um, we made instruments for studying particles. Okay, so now, now you can kind of see how the path sort of converges to what I'm doing now. So for about seven years, I designed instruments for this company. Wow. And then I decided I, need, I wanted to go to grad school, went to Caltech, uh, got my PhD, um, and then actually had to kind of make the decision that a lot of PhDs have to make of whether you want to go directly, uh, you know, into maybe a perhaps a faculty position or whether you wanted to do, uh, you know, maybe among other things, national lab or something like that. And I chose the latter, actually. I chose to uh, go to a place called the National Center for Atmospheric Research. It's in Boulder, Colorado, and actually uh, spent 15 years there. Uh, and then, uh, on a very fateful, I think, uh, period, maybe about seven years ago, I'm going to say, 
a good friend of mine, a faculty member here at UCI, asked me if I wouldn't mind just uh, submitting a CV, a resume, to an open position here at UCI. It was what they called a cluster hire. Uh, maybe you've heard the term, for those of you in tune with what's going on on campus. And they, for a while, they, they liked to hire people that were a similar kind of background to make a critical nucleus of research. And so they were doing this in my field, at, which actually sort of eventually uh, morphed into atmospheric chemistry. Still studying particles, but now more so the chemistry of the atmosphere. So I applied, not thinking I would ever uh, dream of, of moving back to Southern California. I got my PhD here, but thought we left Southern California for good back then. And so we actually just arrived here at Irvine about five years ago. Mm. I'm an old new professor is what I'd like to say. Uh, <laughs> and so a little bit of a background of who I am and where I come from, but been building instruments and studying particles in the atmosphere is what I've been doing now for the past 20 years or so. Have you been involved with Air UCI since you've come to UCI? So Air UCI plays on the fact that UC Irvine itself is sort of a mecca, I would say, of a particular type of atmospheric chemistry research, which is uh, that which involves particles and the interaction of particles and gases. So I've always known about Air UCI. And I, I always thought that having uh, sort of an institute within the university is one of these things that is very special. Not many universities have that and is a real appealing factor of coming to a university like this. So you could say that, you know, having this what they call an organized research unit or whatever you want to call it, having a bunch of people around that all care about the same kinds of things and that you bump into in the hallway and in your neighborhood and is definitely one of those things that brought me to Irvine from Colorado, where I was working before at this national lab. How have things evolved in your career? Would you say your professional life has been, what, 20, 25 years coming out of college? Yeah. Do you feel like our technological capability is much stronger now? Where are we from when you started to where we are now? That's a really good question. So, <laughs> Do we know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, we know so much more. So my little particular part of the field that I've sort of carved out for myself and for my research group is about how particles form and develop in the atmosphere. Okay. And so before I started in this field, there was a phenomenon that we thought was a kind of unusual one, which is the spontaneous formation of particles in the atmosphere from, the, from gases. So you have a bunch of gas molecules floating around the air, and then suddenly you have a whole bunch of particles. And so how did one come from the other? Mm. And so it's a process that we call new particle formation in the atmosphere. And we had, we had no idea, first of all, how common it was, and then also how it happens, but also what are the consequences of this? I mean, what are the consequences of an area the size of Los Angeles, suddenly going from having no particles to having tons of particles. Now, of course, this doesn't happen in Los Angeles. We have reasons why in more polluted areas this is less common. But uh, you think of, say, the boreal forests of Canada and Scandinavia, this is a very common phenomenon. And we just had no clue as to how this process happened. And so it was so in the, that. So that, that, the, that environment like is relatively 
pollution free or whatever and then all of a sudden there'll be this spontaneous like where did all this stuff come from is it yeah yeah that's, wow. that's exactly that's exactly what happened that environment is relatively clean i mean there's very few places on earth net anymore that are you i would say truly clean but it's a it's fairly clean in fact thinking about these events in the boreal forest for example it's usually arctic air that kind of passes into sort of uh, Norway, Sweden, into, into the, that part of the Nordic countries that instigates this process. It turns out the culprit, if you want to call it that, are the organic compounds, the same compounds that give you that fresh pine scent when you uh, walk into a forest. We call these terpenes. One very common one is limonene. That may sound familiar. It's what, lemon, what gives lemons their scent. But these turn out to be very complex organic compounds that when left alone in the atmosphere, even in clean atmospheres, will tend to react in the air and form what I would best call a sticky molecule. And so the stickier these molecules are, the more likely they are to find each other and agglomerate, just like anything you know sticky might tend to do, and form a tiny particle. And so that, in a nutshell, is what's happening in these places. Now, the really interesting question is, who cares? Why would it matter if, well, uh, we know now for, for many, many years, this dates back to the turn of the 20th century, that clouds themselves don't form just because water molecules can perform this sort of sticking act. Water molecules are sticky, but they're not that sticky. They need to have some kind of nucleus or something like that on which to collect themselves. They need a particle, it turns out. So every cloud droplet that you see in the air, and of course you can't see cloud droplets per se, but every cloud that you see in the air starts off as a cloud of particles. And so when we think about the climate implications of the formation of a bunch of particles in the air, what we think about is how do those particles modify the properties of clouds? And it can either modify them in a way that creates more precipitation, they can modify them in a way that creates more scattering of light, which in fact may in fact shield and cool the earth in some way. Um, and we just don't know that. And these are really huge challenges, not just of measurements, but also of these huge global climate models. And we're trying to figure it, uh, this whole thing out. But, but one of the key aspects of it are these particles. What are these particles doing? How are they forming? And then, of course, how are they interacting to form clouds? Wow. Well, that's, that's sort of my bread and butter work right there. Yeah. Did you mention, is it called the Borneo Forest? Did the Boreal Forest, yeah. Boreal. Where, where's that located? So that would be, for example, the, the pine forests of Canada and uh, the Nordic countries, uh, of okay. Finland, Sweden, Norway, Russia, not, not being a Nordic country, but, but that northern belt, say, of pine forests. Gotcha. And they're, they're pretty unique uh, environments because they are such a strong source of these terpenes that I talked about. Are these what you call nanometer-sized particles? Is that That's right. That's right. So when you think about the scale of things, first of all, right? So your hair, we like to all say, is about 100 microns in diameter. So that's a, a, a one-tenth of a millimeter, okay? And so you can see it, right? You can see hair. Uh, so you can you can see how big one of those things is. You divide that by ten thousand, oh. or even maybe a million or so, 
Wow. And you get to about the size of these clusters of molecules that start to morph into, or, or that sort of embryo, if you will, of a particle. And so these are uh, one nanometer, one times 10 to the ninth meter. And so it, they're very difficult to measure just by the nature of their tiny, tiny size. And so what I've done, sort of my claim to fame in this whole field, is I've developed an instrument that can actually probe the chemistry of these nanoparticles. We are a measurement group primarily. Uh, I like to work with modelers because it gives a huge amount of context to the measurements that we make. But we primarily go out in the field. We go to places like the, the boreal forests of Scandinavia, and uh, we've been to the Amazon rainforest. We've been all around, and we make measurements of the composition of nanoparticles to try to understand those questions of how they form and what do they do once they form. Mm, wow. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me just for a moment, Professor. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. My guest today is chemistry professor Jim Smith, and his expertise is air quality and also masks in this time of COVID-19, uh, something that I think the whole world is focused in on these days. And we're, we're going to be getting into that in just a, a few minutes. But right now, we're, we're talking about nanoparticles that are just – can you actually see nanoparticles? Professor? Not at all. No. Wow. No. Yeah. How do you measure it? Is it just, just a, a chemical reaction that you're measuring? How, how do you do that? Yeah, so, uh, so we, we know nanoparticles are there because we can actually, uh, in, in an instrument, we can actually mimic what a cloud does, which is condense a vapor. In the case of a cloud, it's water vapor, right? And the water vapor um, collects on these particles and becomes a cloud droplet that you can see because we know that clouds are there, they scatter light. And so we have instruments to actually detect the physical presence of nanoparticles. And the way they work is by condensing some kind of fluid, be it water or some kind of alcohol um, liquid. And, uh, and then we create a droplet where originally there was just a nanoparticle. And we can detect now this droplet because it's big enough to scatter light. That's the physical part. The chemical part is a lot trickier because... There's so very little material there that uh, in our case, we need to collect uh, more than just a, a few, quite, quite a few nanoparticles in order to get enough of a sample that we can analyze them. Uh, the easiest way to do it is to actually analyze them uh, while you're out in the field. In other words, you can't just collect them and take them back to your lab and say, you know, put them into instruments and, and determine what they are. Uh, that is a way of, of analyzing particle composition, but it's not the way you can do it with nanoparticles because they're just so small, so very little material there that, that they're easily contaminated by anything like uh, taking them back home with you from, from the field. So the way we do it is what we call an online mass spectrometry technique. So mass spectrometry is a way of analyzing compounds with very high sensitivity. And so we, we basically take a particle, we heat it up so that it uh, evaporates, uh, and we, we measure the composition of that, of the fumes that come off, if you will, of this evaporating particle as we're heating it up. Mm. And so that's the uh, sort of key, uh, key way we, we, we make our measurements. Mm. And that's what, is that, 
the general description of what a spectrometer does? Because I keep hearing in the science field about the spectrometers. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, so mass spectrometers measure charged molecules, okay? And so that, that means that they have to be two things. They have to be, first of all, a molecule, which means they have to be suspended in air. I guess I didn't say that. Charged, charged gas phase molecules, charged molecules suspended in the air. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have to heat up our particles in order to make uh, whatever it was within the particle in, um, volatile and into the air. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that a mass spectrometer requires is that they have a charge on them because that's how the mass spectrometer actually measures the uh, material itself is the fact that it has both a charge but it also has a mass because the molecule has a certain number of atoms. And so that is the tricky part really, is how do you um, put a charge onto these evaporated molecules in a way that preserves the properties of the molecule and doesn't destroy it. And, and, and so it, it's tricky. We do something what we call chemical ionization, but there's many, many dozens and dozens and dozens of ways to accomplish this task. And so, yeah, that's, uh, so the technique, uh, I think I've mentioned all the pr- uh, parameters. The technique is called a thermal desorption, chemical ionization, mass spectrometer. And that's the name that we've given to the instrument that I've developed and, and that we use in our lab. Uh, and that has all the components, the thermal desorption that desorbs the nanoparticles, chemical ionization, does that charging, and then we measure it. Hmm. We covered what? a lot of ground here. This is great. <laughs> well, good. The spectrometer has been around for a long time, right? Yep, long time. Is our climate getting better or worse, or <laughs> can you give a sense of that? Um, wow. So that's... Uh, that's and a, you, that's you a, have 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I okay, mean, so let me, let, me, uh, let me give you an update. Uh, so uh, from an air quality perspective, we have some huge success stories. And a lot of the success stories have been based on the ability to make high quality measurements, which we've done, but also based, of course, on really smart policy decisions, right? Such as putting catalytic converters on cars and things like that. But also things like energy use has a huge impact on our climate, obviously, with carbon dioxide, but also on air quality in terms of, for example, phase out of coal helping in terms of um, sulfur compounds, it turns out, one of the common pollutants that come from coal, coal-fired power plants. Mm-hmm. So we've made, I would say, uh, huge strides in our understanding of air quality and climate. Uh, I think we understand what it takes to turn things around from a perspective of chemistry. Yeah, and of course, there are still a lot of questions. For example, this question of interactions between some behaviors. Like, let's say, for example, I decide I want to cut down the boreal forest, okay? I don't know why I'd want to do that. But Mm -hmm. if I were to cut down all these trees, well, let's take another example, the Amazon rainforest, a place that a lot of people are cutting down. What is the climate impact of those kind of activities? And so those are very difficult questions that I don't think we have really solved yet. But those are sort of the the state of the art right now. I think in terms of um, our behavior, energy use, things like that. I think we understand what it takes to uh, both improve our air quality as well as uh, reduce the, uh, the the compounds that we put in the atmosphere that are causing our, our climate change. And so lots of successes, lots of challenges, 
but um, I think a lot of the problems we have now are, are clearly not uh, scientific, but, but more based on policy and the ability to uh, actually do the things that are necessary that are directed by what science is telling us. I've been doing research into uh, just our space exploration and, you know, SpaceX and, uh, and, and NASA seems to be gearing up. And, and I've, growing up, I've loved the NASA program and space exploration. I was very surprised that a former NASA leader, administrator, recently said that she thought that NASA should turn inward, that they should use the resources of NASA to solve our enormous Earth problems as yeah. opposed to exploring. Are you familiar with that quote? I am. And uh, in fact, I would say that NASA has already done quite a lot in this regard. Mm. They, uh, they, they very correctly, I would say even, you know, back, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I uh, was, was working in Colorado, pointed their satellites inward. And, and they even have research aircraft that are equipped with instrumentation that flies around and samples the atmosphere you know, satellite measurements, satellite measurements of um, both of, of air pollution, uh, which is extremely difficult to do, but also of, of climate forcing um, gases and particles is really the sort of thing that NASA is ideally suited to, uh, to, to, to measure. And so they have a huge role to play in solving our problems of air quality and climate. And, and they, for the most part, they have done a wonderful job of, of stepping up. You know, they, I think recently a lot of attention has been on NASA's activities in space, but they have actually really been big players in atmospheric chemistry on the Earth. Gotcha. Good to hear. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and my guest today is chemistry professor Jim Smith, who was recently featured in UCI Magazine, as well as several community webcasts regarding protective masks and what should be considered. His lab is particularly adept in this area as part of AIR UCI Center. Professor, why don't we get into it? Can you please tell us all about what you've been doing over the last several months and what you found out? Great. Yep, sure. So let's see. So it was back in March that I, that Suddenly, uh, life as we knew it took an interesting turn. We found ourselves having to close down our lab, and there was a real fear, and still is to some extent, that we would run out of masks in our hospitals, particularly a real concern from the local Orange County hospitals, not just the UCI hospital, but, for example, the Children's Hospital of Orange County, that they may have to be sort of on their own making decisions about how to protect their workers from respirable viruses, you know, from the coronavirus. And so there were a few calls that kind of went out in my community, local kind of interest in the atmospheric chemistry community to explore, among other things, the efficacy of masks, first of all, to have sort of the testing capability as hospitals started becoming inundated with these good-minded, well, well-intentioned citizens who are sending masks for them to use in the hospital. You know, they were acquiring masks from China, all sorts of things going on with regards to the hospitals just trying to meet their demand. But also there was an interest in just having the ability to test mask materials that people were starting to talk about for homemade masks 
and just giving the public some guidance about what materials are the best and help out with all the confusing information that was existing back in, in March and April, to some extent exists still today. And so it was a really wonderful coincidence that I was able to get together with a collaborator of mine over in the School of Medicine, a professor by the name of Mike Kleinman. Mike is an expert at studying the health effects of air pollution. And he and I had actually worked together on some other projects prior to this. And then also a professor in electrical engineering, Terry Sanger, who's a new faculty member who is very interested in, well, gosh, just about everything. I mean, among other things, he's interested in prosthetics and using different materials to help people who have lost limbs and things like that to recover function in, in those areas. And, uh, and, but he also happens to have a very unusual uh, affiliation. He also is the technical head of uh, the Children's Hospital of Orange County. And so the three of us, Terry, Mike, and I, were joined by a very talented postdoc from Terry's group, Jonathan Realmuto, and we decided to put in a proposal to a fund that UCI was, was making for you know, putting together for, for faculty who uh, have some kind of idea that could help in you know, addressing some of these challenges with the COVID-19 mm. uh, pandemic. So there was a push by UCI, like, look, we have a pandemic here. How can we make a material difference? And That's right. And so, and you submitted this as, uh, hey, here's an idea, and it was accepted. Wow. Yep. We had two things that we said that we would try to do. One is that we had some ideas of mass that we could develop, and we really had some very specific uh, goals in mind. We wanted these masks to be something that anyone can make. You know, you don't have to be a seamstress. You don't have to, or seamster, I guess. You don't have to uh, have any particular talents you can actually make this mask and have it be very effective. And, and especially, and I hope we get to this, uh, you know, the masks that a lot of people wear, we really have very little information about their efficacy. And so we wanted to be able to provide some good, solid data that says, well, if you wear this particular mask, this is what you can expect. So that was our first goal. And the second goal is really just to be a resource for the community. You know, and I've had p- people just send me masks. You know, I've made this mask in, with my sewing machine and I'd like you to test it for me. You know, those kind of things. And, yeah. and it's, it's been a lot of fun. I've, I've, I've been in touch with people all over the world who had questions about masks and materials and things like that. So we've actually started, you know, this back in March and we've already come up with a mass design, tested it pretty thoroughly, and right now we wrote a journal article about this mask and its performance, and it's under review right now in a scientific journal. We hope that the article will be soon published, and then that the world can find out about our wonderful, uh, I don't want to call it an invention, uh, makes it sound like we did something extremely uh, unusual, but we, I think we came up with a wonderful mass design that does very well at, at certain things. And so this is, I think, maybe our first victory, I guess you might say, uh, coming up with this mass design, but we'll see how the uh, scientific community uh, thinks of it as it goes through the review process and, and then take it from there. Well, first of all, congratulations and good luck with that. What's yeah. the, what, what kind of timing? You mean for the review? Yeah. Yeah. So, 
there's been a real intention by the scientific journals or the real attempt to streamline the review process and to try to provide reviews as quickly as possible because there's such an urgent need for this you know, good science. And, uh, and so we expect probably within a week or two to have our feedback. Uh, and if it's something you know, we can hopefully address, uh, then maybe a few weeks later um, be able to uh, announce that the uh, publication is now uh, finalized. So we're kind of waiting for that. We don't want to be the kind of group that makes an announcement a little too early and then suddenly realizes that there was some flaw or something that we hadn't thought about or something like that. There's actually been a few of those since the whole COVID-19 pandemic started of people that were maybe a little too quickly. Of course, I'd be happy to talk about the design and everything, but I just, uh, this, this is sort of the way science works, right? You have an idea, you write a paper about it, your peers review it and tell you, uh, you know, when they improve on it and then science gets better. Mm. Can you brief, briefly say, who is this mysterious group? Is it an organization or is it a peri- periodical or who, who is it? Oh, or can you, or any, can you say, or is it not appropriate? You mean, you mean the, uh, the journal? Yeah, yeah. Who do you submit to? Or Yeah, so um, the uh, journal is uh, in the American Chemical Society. So that's oh. the, the big uh, American organization for chemists. And they have maybe, I don't know, dozens of different journals that they uh, publish as part of their organization. They have one called ACS Nano. And ACS, American Chemical Society Nano uh, Journal, has really, in my view, has been the one that people have been sending um, a lot of mask-related papers into. And so it seemed like the appropriate place to put it. uh, And so we're waiting for uh, ACS Nano to uh, tell us uh, what they think of it. Gotcha. I would imagine that you've been discussing your ideas and so forth literally around the world or, or, you know, with your colleagues and so forth. I guess there's all kinds of ideas. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, just a few maybe comments that you might find interesting about mass per se. I mean, first of all, I need to emphasize that there's two purposes for a mask and I'm sure you've probably heard this in the media, but I'm just going to say it right now. So there's, protecting you from others, and then there's protecting others from you. And so the, the primary, the, the, the main masks that we see, cloth masks, most of the public wear, are really more geared towards the latter, of protecting the public from you. And the reason I say that is that they're really best optimized for droplets and spit and things like that that come out of your mouth, both when you talk, but also when you cough and sneeze. And it's really, those, those kind of um, droplets are, are typically large droplets and ones that can easily get trapped in the fabric of a cotton or, you know, so any kind of cloth mask. Mm. Okay, so then the, the second role of a mask, and this is, of course, uh, keenly important in hospital settings, but other settings, uh, is to protect the wearer from particles or droplets that are in the room. And this is a, a raging hot debate right now in our field, which is, is the coronavirus being carried in very small particles that could persist in uh, a closed room for not just a 
few minutes, but can actually persist for hours. Mm. And so I'm actually part of a paper that has been in the news now for the last two or three days, uh, signed by over 200 scientists and uh, myself and actually a few of my colleagues at Air UCI are co-signers of that paper that said, hey, World Health Organization, we think you haven't really been thinking enough about the fact that these very small particles that could persist in, in the air for a while could in fact be carrying coronavirus. And so those kind of particles are actually quite small and actually smaller than what a cloth mask uh, can actually do a fairly good job of filtering out. And so that's why medical professionals have the so-called N95 masks, where the 95 stands for the fact that the, the most penetrable size of particles still get trapped at an efficiency of 95% in those masks. So our goal was to try to do as good as we can with regard to respiratory protection. We want people to be able to wear a mask uh, that can, um, if not give them 95% protection, give them enough protection that in case there are some concerns about respirable uh, viruses uh, in hiding in these little tiny particles, they can be afforded some level of protection by our mask design. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that is sort of the, the, the stated goal of our project. And, and so we came up with uh, what we call the UCI origami mask. It's made by folding entirely and you can attach them by, you can, you can, there's a few structural staples and you can just use an office supply stapler to, to do that. The only other fancy things you need are some kind of strap. You can use a shoelace if you wish, or if you want to be fancy, you can buy some elastic from the sewing store. And then to top it off, uh, we feel that the real key element of it is to have a good seal, particularly around the bridge of your nose. And so um, we, we actually uh, have a kind of a band, which you may have seen in, in other mass designs that just does that. So the combination of these uh, materials then uh, create what we feel is an extremely robust design that you can give a person, depending on the material that they fold this out of, the kind of protection that these N95 masks provide to medical workers. Mm. So it can be that good. But we don't necessarily feel like the public needs such high protection. There are other materials that are easier to breathe through that uh, you could also fold into this kind of mask. And this would give you, if not 95% protection, will give you maybe 70% protection and uh, still be something comfortable enough that you can wear it uh, to the grocery store or somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. Just one more moment, Professor. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossmeyer, and my guest is Air UCI Chemistry Professor Jim Smith, whose expertise is in air quality. And right now we're talking about his latest research with COVID-19 protective masks. Professor, is there a website to go to to have a look? There is indeed, yeah. Oh, so we have full instructions on how to fold one of these masks, including a video. Oh. Um, we have some data. And of course, we will update it as much as possible as things progress. And the, the email address is, is fairly simple. So it's sites, S-I-T-E. 
www.ecs.sites.uci.edu, and then a slash, and then UCI mask. So it's U-C-I-M-A-S-K. And so we call ourselves the UCI mask team. And so if you just remember UCI mask and then sites.uci.edu is what comes in front of that with the slash. This is where you will find you know, a blog, you'll see a video of me giving you a tour of my lab and, and things like that. Excellent. So it's really interesting with the spike now, you know, we, it seemed like in California, Orange County, we got a good start. You know, it seemed like our numbers were good, but now as things have been opening up, boy, it, it's very concerning. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting when you start to talk about, well, 95% assurance and well, 70% does the general public. And all I know is every time I start to think, oh, well, gosh, maybe this is an effect, even though I'm very conservative, whenever I read about a patient in the hospital, I'm like, oh my God, there, I would yeah. never want to get this. This is, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's been very concerning. I feel like it's fairly easy to protect yourself if you're outdoors and you are really being very aware of keeping your distance from people. Of course, it's always important to have a mask. I always have one around my neck whenever I go outside. But if you can keep good separation, the, the normal convection, the normal air flow around you is enough really to protect, I think, yourself and others. It's the indoor spaces that are the real difficult things. And so, of course, like I said, it's such a hot debate about what exactly is the mechanism by which these people are being infected. But I think it's fairly safe to say that it's because of the indoor environment. And it's either because they are just rubbing shoulders too close with people who are carriers. But there's also this possibility still that they could be keeping reasonable distance, not wearing a mask, and they could be still exposed to this. And so I think what happened was that we got complacent. We started inviting friends over to our house. We started hanging out together, perhaps outside, perhaps we would sit too close for too long with someone. And I know I just said that the airflow outside is pretty good, but of course, you can have situations in the backyard or something like that where perhaps the airflow isn't so good. And so it's too bad because we worked so hard. We sacrificed so much to get to where we were. And now it seems like it's gone crazy again. All I can say is that it loops back to our discussion about air pollution, right? Science tells us what we need to do right now. The question is, do we have the will and do our leaders have the ability to admit to what's right and, and stick with it? Because that's the only way I can see that we're going to get out of this. Professor, when I'm out walking outside, when bicycles come up from behind and they whiz yeah. past, and it's really frustrating when they're within a step of you and they're not wearing a mask. All I can say about that is that it's two things, right? It's how close you are, and then also how long you are exposed to something. And so when a bicyclist whizzes by your shoulder and, and that bicyclist doesn't have a mask, you could say, yeah, that was, that was kind of rude. But on the other hand, they were there for a split second. And so your exposure is very, very limited. Now, 
I, and I don't think anyone in the scientific profession can tell you exactly what the odds are that a bicyclist going by you at 20 miles an hour will give you a virus. But it's all a numbers game, right? And the only way to really play the numbers game correctly is to limit both the amount of time you spend close to somebody who's not protected, and then also to keep your spacing. I, I would, yeah, that's about all we can say, right? Unfortunately, science can only tell us so much. We just don't know just how, how, you know, what the right combination is. And so people have been erring on the side of caution. And I always am very respectful when I see people and very happy when I see people honoring that. It's a tough one. (laughs) Yeah, right. Professor, do you have any insight into how much coronavirus does it take to infect an individual? Is it a single coronavirus cell or is it a grouping of multiple infected cells? No, I actually don't have much insight into that. My impression is that it's more than a single cell. It's a larger amount of the virus. I mean, that really speaks to the sort of probability game that you play when you're trying to make decisions about how to protect yourself, right? Because in these very, very small particles, the ones that I've been talking about that we think may be of concern, the feeling is is that there's really not that many viruses on those. And so on the other hand, there's a lot more of them. So again, it's sort of this numbers game that you have to kind of think about when you're thinking about how to protect yourself. Gotcha. Are you saying that if you get a single virus, that, that is your knowledge that it probably won't multiply? Does it take no more than just... Yeah. Is, it, is so, it hard to say? Yeah. So that's an excellent question to ask somebody who's, yeah. uh, who's an expert in that kind of issue. But my impression is that it takes more than just a single virus. Yeah. One of my listeners ha- has su- submitted a provocative question. Oh, good. <laughs> when the human body passes gas, uh, commonly known as a fart, your pants, your underwear, it doesn't hold it in. Are we talking about apples and apples in here? Is it apples and oranges? Is it gas versus aerosol? Can you yeah. shed any light on that? Yeah, I think I can shed a little bit of light on that. Uh, let's see. Uh, couple of things come to mind when you talk about that very colorful uh, uh, scenario. (laughs) I just want to point out that your 30 years of education is culminating in a fart question. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So here's a couple of insights related to that. A colleague of mine, her name is Kim Prather. She's a professor at UC San Diego. She brings up a good way of thinking about aerosols and just sort of how far to keep from people and stuff like that. Her feeling is that we all know, like when we walk down the street and somebody's smoking, how close we are to that person to actually start to smell the cigarette smoke. We also, and and we know that in fact, you know, sometimes you can be a half a block away and still be able to smell the smoke, right? And the same thing with with somebody with heavy perfume. I'm amazed, like, wow, I can still smell it. Right. And so this is a process that known in the scientific field as diffusion. This is how particles stay suspended in the air. They actually literally knock around with gas molecules. They're that small. They stay suspended in this way. Now, particles um, will stay in the air for a shorter amount of time compared to gases. And so when you smell uh 
for example, a fart or something like that. <laughs> what you're smelling is the effect of gas diffusion in the air. But then cigarettes, on the other hand, the cigarette smoke that you smell are particles, okay? And so what I'm getting at is that, uh, and, and these will last, uh, you know, maybe some 10, 15 minutes up to an hour, maybe even two hours sometimes. I think we all kind of have a good sense for how, you know, that when you're in a small room and somebody's smoking, how stifling that is. This is actually the kind of exposure that we're getting to particles, for example, that could be coming from somebody that is infectious and that's, uh, that's sneezing or coughing or something like that. And so when you're trying to decide how far away to be from another person, just think about what if that person were smoking? How far would I be before I would actually be able to smell their cigarette smoke? I think it's probably a little bit on the conservative side for being uh, far away from somebody. But I think we all, because of the strong scent of the tobacco, we all kind of have a good sense for how to keep away from people uh, that are, that, and, and if, you know, presuming that we don't want to smell this smoke. So. Right, right. Boy, it's, um, it's complicated, isn't it? It's complicated. <laughs> It really is. It really. is. It is. Uh, it, it's. It's complicated, but you know, luckily we can all go outside and we can enjoy a beautiful morning, right. like I did this morning. And there are ways that we can live a high quality life very safely. And people just have to keep heart with that thought and just be safe as possible. And particularly, I think, you know, the, in the indoor settings, uh, I think is, is right. really the takeaway from this, from what we've known so far. Gotcha. Will your team continue to work on this issue or have you guys taken it as far as you're going to go? Yeah. So the initial goals of the project are sort of coming to a, a culmination with the design of this mask. It brings up the question of what next. I've been thinking a little bit about carbon dioxide exposure when you're exhaling air, your exhaled air fills the mask, you're breathing it back in again trying to think a little bit about and making measurements of uh, that, that kind of stuff. Too early to really say much about it, but we have, again, some instruments that we typically use in the atmosphere that we can apply to this question of what is carbon dioxide concentrations inside mass. I'm also very curious about the difference between inhaled versus exhaled particles when it comes to mask filtration. Exhaled air is very much more humid compared to inhaled air. And this humidity and what we had mentioned uh, previously about the ability of particles to serve as cloud droplets, this humidity could in fact mean that the particles coming out of you are wet, almost liquid-like, whereas the particles coming in through a mask are not, and how, how those differences apply to mask filtration. There's a few of these ideas uh, popping in my head. There's lots of fun lab experiments that, that I have in mind uh, to, uh, to explore some of these issues. Well, um, Professor, thank you very, very much. Obviously, the coronavirus and the pandemic is huge, but in terms of every single person in the, the world is really talking about masks and what to do. So it's, it's very important. And, and thank you so much to you and your team. Yeah, and we're just uh, really super happy and grateful that we can apply our skills to uh, something as important as this. It's, it's really been very rewarding for us as well. Thank you again to atmospheric chemistry professor Jim Smith for taking us on a tour of his professional life 
his expertise into nanoparticle identification, and his recent dive into mass protection from COVID-19. Again, his UCI Mass Team website can be found by typing in your browser sites.uci.edu forward slash UCI Mask. That's sites, S-I-T-E-S dot U-C-I dot E-D-U forward slash U-C-I mask. There you will find much information on mass protection and what he's been describing during this interview. The science is clear. Wear a mask and be safe. And now turning the page, my guest next week is former U-C-I postdoc and current NASA astronaut Tracy Caldwell Dyson, who is a veteran of two missions to the International Space Station and I know very much wants to go to the moon. It promises to be a great interview. And coming up next is Ash Kumara on Entrepreneur Nation, where every week he interviews experienced business leaders who share valuable information about succeeding in business. Stay tuned. And as always, thank you to blues piano man Fred Kaplan for his show tunes and theme music from his fantastic CD called Signifying. This is UCI Conversations, where every week we explore the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. It's my pleasure to serve this incredible institution, particularly at this time during the pandemic. Hang in there, everybody. We will get through this. Stay cool. Stay safe and have a great evening. So long, everybody.